You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Uh, as we dive into Psalm 24, we'd like you to stand with me uh, so we can read um, God's Word together. So if you have your Bibles open, you should be at Psalm 24. It'll also be on the screen in front of us. If you would, practice reading along with me. I am in the ESV version, big joke, extra save version, right? No laugh. (laughs) I'm wondering if y'all are actually with me this morning. Can somebody say amen? Amen. Okay, now talk back is good. Let's begin in verse 1 and read this together loudly. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For He has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in His holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of His salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek Him and seek the face of the God of Jacob, Selah. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Selah. This is the Word of God for the people of God this morning. Amen. Let me pray a blessing over His Word. Father, thank You for Your Word. Ask God that You would come and and do what, uh, um, what You intend to do through the preaching of Your Word, which is to draw us to You. To draw us to You. To help us to trust in you, to be transformed as you speak. There's nothing that any of us needs this morning outside of hearing a word from you. We don't need a, a word from me, we need a word from you. So, God, I ask that you would come and do that, and I trust you to do that work in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Psalm 24. I must admit, as I uh, studied through Psalm 24 this week, it gave me some fits. Um, it, it, if, you, if, if you do some deep study on it, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't track in a very legible outline. Um, it doesn't lend itself to a, what you might say, a, a verse by verse, working your way from the top to the bottom in, a, in an outline sort of a way. And so it gave me some fits. It is a little bit more uh, like a very creative songwriter would write, kind of in cycles and in circles and a jumbled up mess as creative types do, and much less in a line for line bullet point um, outline. So uh, if you know me, I'm much less the creative type and much more the bullet point list type, and so it gave me fits. But I was thankful for one of the commentaries I was reading this week because uh, one of the commentaries, as I studied it, uh, the author grabbed hold of 
uh, the theme of the big questions that uh, we ask about God. You think about questions, like from the moment that we're able to articulate full sentences, for some of us at the age of 42, that's still hard. Somebody say amen. amen. Okay, very good. Um, well, from that moment, we, we begin asking these big, gigantic questions about life, right? Well, think about maybe where some of those questions started. Here's one I thought of. Why do lightning bugs butts light up? I mean, it's, uh, it's a question that we ask. Um, how do my feet remain on the ground? Why don't I float away? We ask these questions. Now, I know those of us that are much more mature, we know the answers to some of these questions, and so these are childish questions, right? Uh, or you ask these questions when you're young. How do I get the attention of that pretty girl across the, the <coughs> classroom or that good-looking dude? about this one. This is an important one. I still ask, why did God create mosquitoes? <laughs> I figured it out. Now, I know that he created snakes to eat mos mosquitoes, but I don't like snakes, so I just ask him, why did you create either one? Because I hate them both. I don't like bloodsuckers, and I don't like squirmy little things on the ground. Why did God create these things? Uh, here's another one that I thought of, too. Some of you may have asked this question. Some of you may be on the other side of this question. You'll get it here in a minute. Why do some people think that liver and beets is actually good? That's gross. Okay. Like, I remember growing up, my mom would make me eat liver and beets. You sit your butt at that table until it's gone, right? Good lady. Oh. God rest her soul. Okay. And her liver and her beets. <laughs> I think what happens is our questions do evolve over time, though, as we mature and as we experience the the highs and the lows of, of life, and take long, begin to ask questions about purpose. You can ask questions about value, like, why am I actually here on this earth? That's a deep question that, even if you got a great Sunday school answer, you're still going to ask that question until the day that you die. Why am I here? What am I doing here? What's the reason for me being here on this earth? And ask questions like, what's important to me? What do I value? And that can change over time. What do I want to do with my life? Is there really a God? And even if you've been following Jesus for a long time, I still think there are times in our lives where we ask, is there a God? And then there's times in our lives, like when your daughter's in a car, gets hit by a truck, and rolls off the interstate, and you go, there is a God, right? But there are other seasons of life where you still ask the question. You get further past that experience maybe and you, you still ask the question later on you kind of that that it gets in your your rear view that that miraculous moment you still ask god are you really here there are those moments where pain suffering difficulty set in is there really a god present in the midst of my pain and my suffering and my hardship right if there is a god what's he like i think the i think the humans have been asking that question uh, from from moment one there's a God, what's he like? Hard to fathom what God is like. What does God want from me? Right? What, what does he want from me? Does he want my 10% tithe on Sunday mornings, attend church almost every Sunday, maybe go to a small book, read a book or two, post some things on Facebook that says if you follow Jesus, you'll post this, and if you don't, then, anyways, if you don't post this, then God's going to, you've seen those posts, right? Okay. 
what does God want from me? How can I, how can I get to know an invisible being called God? How does this work? These are questions um, that we ask. And the beauty of Psalm 24 is that it answers some of the biggest questions that we actually have about God. First question I see in uh, Psalm 24 is this question. Who is God? Who is God? And this is probably one of the biggest questions we ask, right? Who is God? And some people describe God as an old woman who bakes cookies. If you've read that book. Um, Other people envision God as this grouchy old dude who hides behind a curtain, kind of like the Wizard of Oz, hard to get close to, kind of incompetent, right? And still, I think there are other people who think that God is more like a genie in a bottle, right? Um, Some invisible sky fairy, basically, grants some of our wishes, shows up when things get difficult. But the psalmist here in Psalm 24 describes God. And he does this in verses 1 through 2, 5 through 6, 8, and 10. So we're going to jump around a little bit. And he describes God in three basic ways. One, he describes him as the creator. Two, describes him as the God of salvation. Three, describes him as the king of glory. Listen to what he says. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Right? He's creator. Five and six, the Lord is the God of salvation. He is the God of Jacob, right? This is the God of salvation. Look at eight and ten. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. So when the psalmist describes God as the creator and the God of salvation, And the king of glory, what he's doing is he's making some really massive claims about God. Think about all three of these with me just for a few moments. The creator. God is the creator. The psalmist begins by describing God as the owner of the earth. This is interesting when you think about the fact that God owns the earth and he owns every living creature on it. Why? Why does he describe him that way? And the answer simply is, according to the psalmist, is that God owns everything. Why? Because he is the one who created everything. He's the original founder. He's the one who established every living thing. Therefore, who is God? God is the creator who owns everything because he founded and established all of it. And we can see that account in Genesis, right? in the first few chapters of the book of Genesis. At the beginning, God created heavens and the earth. And then what follows is a detailed account of the seven days of creation. Six days of creation and the seventh day of rest. (laughs) Notice this second one, the fact that God is the God of salvation. Verses 5 and 6. When the psalmist says that the Lord is the God of salvation, He is the God of Jacob. Why is that important to note? Why would you stop there and press pause and think about that for a minute? What what significance does this description of God hold for us? And the simple answer is this. When the psalmist refers to God as the God of Jacob, as the Lord who is the God of salvation, what's he doing? He's referring to a very rich history of God's interaction with the nation of Israel. 
historically, the nation of Israel continuously rebelled against God. And they often found themselves facing the consequences of their rebellion. And what did that usually mean? The consequences of their rebellion typically meant that they lived in bondage and they lived in slavery to their enemies until God would then show up miraculously to save them. That's the history, grand narrative of the Old Testament and God's interactions with Israel all throughout. God calls his people to him. He created them to be a certain way, and yet they began to live a different way, which was actually in rebellion against what God said, and because of that, they would face the consequences of that sin, and God would say, if you continue to walk this way, this is what's going to happen, and then that would happen, and then God would allow them to stay in that consequence for a season, and then God would miraculously show up and redeem them and save them from their enemies. Doesn't that sound like a familiar age-old story? That's the theme of the story of how God interacted as the God of salvation throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament. Now, the psalmist also mentions a name. What's the name that he mentions here? The name is... Golly, no. It's really, really quiet. What? It's Jacob. Yes, it's Jacob. Very good. Tracking. Everybody say Jacob with me. Jacob. Okay, are there any Jacobs in here? Okay, we're good. I'm just waiting for somebody to go, yes, what do you need? Jacob. The psalmist mentions Jacob. Why? Why would he mention the God of Jacob? Why not the God of Abraham? Well, he could have mentioned Abraham. Why not the God of Joseph? Why not the God of Donnie or the God of Patrick or Dominic? Why not? Why, Why the God of Jacob? Jacob was known as the man who wrestled with God. And he wrestled with God because he wanted to not only receive a physical blessing from God, physical provision from God, but more than that, he wanted to see God's face. What does that mean when you say, I want to see your face? You think about this, when you take a trip, and you have a spouse, or you have a loved one, and you take a trip, and you haven't seen them for a long time, and you say, I just want to be with you. What you're saying is, I don't just want a phone call. I don't just want a text message or an email or a Facebook message. I, I want to see your face. I want to be in your presence. This is why our phones that have the FaceTime capability are so helpful. We learned a lot of this in 2020, right? I want to see your face. He wanted to be in God's presence. So, so this historical title for God, the God of my salvation, it finds its ultimate fulfillment for us in the saving work of God and the cross and the empty tomb of Christ. Because, because of that work, you and I are able to then pursue God in prayer, in study, in times alone and say, God, let me see your face. In other words, let me be in your presence. You might remember the, the, the psalmist later on in was it Psalm 52, I think, or Psalm 51, when he says, please take not your presence from me, O Lord. Take not your spirit from me idea of wanting to be in the presence of God. So God is the God of Jacob, the God of salvation. Notice the third thing that the psalmist says about God. He says that he is the king of glory, right? Verses 8 and 10. Now I want you to think about the image of a king. You got the image in your head? Somebody say yes. Okay, does anybody not have the image in their head? Shame on you. Anyways, kidding. Somebody, I'm just kidding, right? 
The image of a king. Something that reminds us of absolute power, right? Absolute authority. When you think of evil enemies of a really good king, what would they do? They would shrink back in terror at the thought of a good king coming and being in their presence. Why? Because he had been victorious over them. If they were evil enemies, what would he do to them when he comes? If he's a good king, he'd take them out, right? But then uh, put yourself in different shoes. You are now the subject, not an evil enemy of a good king, but you are now the subject of a good king. Uh, you are the one, this king rules over you. You are his subject. You love him. Why? Because he cares for you. He continuously provides for you. And so when you know that he's going to come and be in your presence, you, you lean forward with anticipation of being in his presence because you know that he's going to take care of you. The psalmist here knows God as the king of glory. He knows God as the king of glory who had been victorious over his enemies, right? He knows God as the king of glory who continues to care for his people. And this is why our psalmist describes God in kind of a question answer sort of a way. Okay? It kind of reminds me of the way that we would maybe catechize um, um, young people. It's a question and answer sort of a way. You, you would say things like, what is sin? And then the child would answer that. You'd say, who is God? And the child would answer that. And you'd say, what is rebellion? And so on and so forth. Yet, the psalmist approaches it that way. He says, who is the king of glory? And the answer he gives, it's a rhetorical question because he gives the answer next. What he really wants is not really to get after the question. He's wanting to get after the answer. And he says, the answer is that the Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle, this is the king of glory. He asks the second time, just in case the first time we missed it. Who is the king of glory? It is the Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. So when you read this and you think about it, what you get is this concept that strength, might, power, weightiness. It's a weightiness. When someone important walks into the room, there's a weightiness that happens. There's an attention factor that takes place, right? When somebody famous or important walks into the room, you snap to attention. And you say, I notice that important person. You give attention to that important person. That's what's captured in this title, King of Glory. See, there's no enemy. There's no circumstances that can overpower this king. There's no enemy, there's no circumstances that holds a candle to this king. Our greatest enemies, you hear me say this all the time, Satan, sin, and death, right? Satan condemns, sin tempts, death taunts. That Our greatest enemies don't hold a candle to the power of God who is the king of glory. Amen. Right, thank you. Amen, right? And hold a candle. I don't know what you're walking through in your life right now. I don't know what difficulties you're facing. I don't know what fears you're walking with this morning. I don't know what sins you're struggling with. I will tell you that I, I walked in this morning with this word performance on my mind for lots of reasons that I won't go into. 
keep finding the older I get, the less I am able to perform in the way that I once did. Even in my job, I don't have the brain capacity that I used to have. I don't have the energy that I used to have. It drives me absolutely batty. And it weighs on me heavy. That word performance haunts me. I don't know, again, where you're at or what you struggle with or what's happening in your life, but I do know this. Whether it be Satan who condemns or sin who tempts or death who taunts, they don't hold a candle to the power of the God, our God, who is the King of glory. Amen? Think about this second question that we see kind of in the text too. Very implicit in the text. The question is this. How do I get close to God? Right? If the first question is, who is God? Second question is, how do I get close to this God? See, when you think about who God is, you think about what we just kind of looked at, the fact that God is the creator. He's the God of salvation. He is the king of glory. At least for me, I don't know for you, it can begin to feel a little bit overwhelming. Now again, once I step out of the box of seeing God like a little sky fairy who just shows up whenever I rub that genie in a bottle through my prayers or some stupid stuff like that, right? Once I begin to realize the weightiness and the largeness and the grandness of who God is, He's the Creator. He's the God of creation. He's the God of salvation. There's no salvation outside of Him, right? He is the king of glory who uproots me as the king of my own little kingdom. Once I begin to wrestle with that, I, I begin to feel a little bit overwhelmed at the concept of drawing close to him. I mean, you look at the picture of the, um, the throne room in Revelation when they're crying out, holy, holy, holy. Man, I just... It, it twists me up. Like, how could anyone get close to that God? Now, please resist the temptation of the Sunday school answer. Trust in Jesus, you can get there. This is true. Don't hear me wrong. This is true. But I think there's still something inside of us that intrinsically knows that to come into God's presence is a very dangerous thing. It's a very impossible thing. It's a very heavy and hard thing thing to do. And I think sometimes if you've been saved longer than 15 minutes, I think it might be kind of easy to forget how weighty this coming into the presence of God thing is. And so then our, our life with God, our relationship with God then turns into this religiously mundane thing where we go through the motions and we never actually experience the voice of God speaking to us because we don't know how to come into his presence. And I think part of that is just simply that we've forgotten how weighty, how important how large, how grand he is. So I want us to imagine for a minute, what would it be like uh, if you were to get close to the founder of the Ford Motor Company? Anybody here close to that guy? Have you ever met him? There's one in the back. We need, we need to have a conversation at the end. We'd like to talk about that. <clears throat> Think about meeting the top general of the United States. Think with the authority and the power that that man would carry. Anybody met him? Maybe Isaiah? No? I was hoping. Think about meeting the President of the United States. Anybody ever met the President? No? Okay, well, 
you know, and, and all we're doing here is just talking about meeting them. You understand the differentiation I'm making? I would assume that we could probably all, if we took a minute, we could probably all imagine ways that we could possibly meet any of those people that I just mentioned, but if we jump through the right hoops, we probably could, right? could probably meet them if you made it maybe part of your life goals, part of your purpose for living. Um, but what if you take it a step further? What if you tried to imagine what it would be like to become close, personal friends with any of those people? Think about the power at your fingertips if you knew the top general of the United States Army. Okay? Think about the worldwide influence you might have if you were close personal friends with the president of the United States, regardless of what party he's with. Just think about that. Right? What would it take for that to happen? What would that be like? I think what it would take for that to happen, first and foremost, is, and you could, you, could, you could do these answers in either way, depending on how reformed or how not reformed you are. doesn't matter. I think at the end of the day, y- 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 you, would, y- you would have to want to be friends, and that other person would have to want to be <laughs> friends too, right? You're like, dang, that was simple. It is that simple. That's the beauty of the gospel. Very simple. First and foremost, you have to want to be friends with God. Right? You, you have to want to not just walk through the daily religious motions. But the reality is that you can get close to God if your heart is open to him and if you seek him. Look at what the psalmist says in verse 6. The psalmist says in verse 6 that people who want to be friends with God are people who do what? They seek him. They seek the face of the God of Jacob. See, this is the image of someone who wants to be friends with God to the extent that they continually search for their friend with all of their energy and all of their resources. It's a, it's a crazy, I mean, think about what we put our energy and our resources into. I, I, I hesitate to try to think about how much TV I watch or how much social media time I consume, or how many hours I spend working, (laughs) Um, or just how many hours I spend being lazy. I I spend my resources that way. I pursue things. I don't even notice half the time the things that I pursue, and the question is, how how much do I spend in terms of seeking the face of God to be in his presence. If the image is that image of, of Jacob who is, is wrestling with God, right? If that's the image, the, the, it's the image of, of somebody who wrestles with God to the point of exhaustion, right? Wrestling with God until you get a broken hip. I think that's what happened with Jacob. Now, well, what if we wrestled so much that it actually costed us physically, financially, relationally, like, like to the extent that it hurt a little bit. The national average of people who give to a church is 3%. And the baseline um, training wheels on generosity is 10%, according to uh, the book of Malachi, if I remember right. right? So why is this? Because I think that we have forgotten what it means to pursue a God to the extent that it hurts 
because we have misconstrued the picture that God actually pursued us to the extent that it not only hurt, but it cost his son his life. He poured out 100% of his blood, not 10%, right? This is just one illustration that we could use in terms of what does it mean to pursue God in relationship, to pursue his presence. Practically, it works its way out into the way we handle our money and the way we handle our relationships and the, the, the way we handle our jobs and so on and so forth, okay? I, I use that one illustration. See, wanting to be friends with God is about so much more than wanting the benefits that God gives us. It's about truly wanting to be in God's presence. Well, the psalmist also refers to those people who are seeking after God by using a metaphor, right? Look at the metaphors he uses in verses 7 and 9. You got your Bibles, you might look back at it with me, see if I'm telling you right. He uses the metaphor of the gates of an ancient city, right? Possibly the gates of heaven might be what he's referring to here as, as Jesus was welcomed home after the resurrection. If that's true, think about the insane party that took place in heaven when Jesus resurrected after finishing and sealing the deal of salvation. You imagine the party in heaven when he walked through those gates, okay? Um, blows our Husker game days away. Although I'm looking forward to Husker game days. Blows them away. I don't know why I'm looking forward to it, because anyway, that's another story. <laughs> Imagine what that was like in heaven, if that's truly the image. When you look at verses 7 and 9, what does the psalmist say? He says, lift up your heads, O gates. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. What's this the image of? Making this practical for us, I think it's the image of someone who wants to be friends with God. It's somebody who wants to be friends with God to the extent that that person actually opens the doorway and the gateway of the city of his own heart, which is impossible to do on your own, might I add. Only the Spirit can give you that energy. And therefore, if you do not have that, what you ought to do is ask God for that. Amen. God, help me to open my heart. My heart's close to you. Please open it so that I might find you and know you. That's the picture. It's the picture of a heart that is opening wide to the work of the king, the savior, the creator of all things, the king of glory so that he might come in. You see, recognizing God as the one who deserves the glory, what's that actually about? It's about obediently giving him the attention and the honor he deserves, okay? And I know sometimes when visitors walk through our door, it's hard for us, some, especially us more introverted people, right? much harder. I really don't want to talk to new people very much, but if God were to walk in and we were to treat God the same way, we wouldn't, would we? Actually, left to our sinful selves, yes, we would. That's actually what we do. We say, ah, oh, that's just God. And the appropriate response here is that our hearts would open to God as he comes. We would give him the attention and the honor he deserves. So you have to want to be friends with God, right? And the proof that you actually want to be friends with God 
It's the amount of effort that you invest in searching for him and then welcoming him obediently into your life. Let me say it again. You have to want to be friends with God. And the proof that you actually want to be friends with God, the evidence, the fruit in your life of that is this, that you invest yourself in searching for him, that you invest yourself in welcoming him obediently into your life. Now, the last thing that we see is this fact that not only must we want to be friends with God, but God must want to be friends with us, right? Has to go both ways. So I want you to think again for a minute about the, um, the idea of the, the founder of the Ford Motor Company, right? Or the top general of the United States Army or the president of the United States. When you think about those three people, the idea that any of those three people would actually want to be friends with me seems like a really far-fetched idea, so it's hard for me to grasp, grab a hold of, isn't it? Um, why would any of those people want to be friends with little old me? Um, what would it take for any of those people to want to be friends with me in the first place? In the same vein, we ask that question, why would God want to be friends with me? And I think oftentimes in Christianity, we, we, we kind of turn this story into something like, I don't know, it's like we turn it upside down, and rather than talking about God and his glory and all that he does in salvation, we start talking about humanity in ways that almost deify humanity. Does that make any sense? I just used a big word, deify humanity. I think what I mean is that oftentimes we talk about this in a way that kind of flips everything upside down, and we make people the point of the gospel rather than God the point of the gospel. I think that's what I'm trying to say. Um, so I, I want to be really careful as we talk about God wanting to be our friend that we don't misunderstand the point that <laughs> he's the king of glory, he's the creator. He, he has absolutely no reason to want to be friends with you and I. That's just the reality. Like the president of the United States has no reason to be friends with you and I. In that same way, God has no reason. Meaning when I say that he has no reason, he has no reason in terms of what would sustain him or make him happy. Because at the end of the day, God is perfectly fine. He doesn't need you and I, right? Uh, God is perfectly happy and fine inside the Holy Trinity. Father, Son, and Spirit, they, 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 don't, they don't need anything else. Now, that's true. But equally as true is this truth that God did create us to be his image bearers. And God did create us to be in relationship with him. So, again, without making us the point of the gospel and keeping God the point of the gospel, the psalmist says this in verses 3 and 4. He says, hey, who, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Right? Who, who shall stand in his holy place? And then he answers the question. He loves these rhetorical questions, right? Ask and answered. Answer. Verse 4, he who has clean hands, a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. That's a really awesome practical description. And if I'm a really good moralist or legalist, I'll run right out of this room and be like, hey, I need clean hands. I need a pure heart. I need to not lift up my soul to what is false. And I need to not swear deceitfully. And then God will want me. Follow me? Again, very subtle what do we learn here? What does God want? The people that God wants to be friends with are what kind of people? The kind of people who have pure hearts, the kind of people that have pure hands. Anybody who's never practiced dishonesty, anybody who has never pursued selfish gain, this is the kind of person that can be friends with God. 
That's basically what you read, right? <coughs> we all know instinctively there's something wrong with this picture. What's wrong with this picture? I, I'm what's wrong with this picture, okay? And so are you. Because the picture you get here is that God wants to be friends with perfect people. Wouldn't you agree? I know we're probably struggling with this, but it's really true. I mean, it's really the way this goes. God wants to be friends with perfect people. So, so when I begin to realize, I mean, I can't get past these passages of Scripture, and neither can you. We can try to ignore them, but the truth is still there. The tension is still there. I mean, let me ask you this. What else is going to create any kind of hunger or thirst in you for a bloody cross and an empty tomb other than the, this truth? Let me ask that again. What else is going to create a thirst or a hunger in you and I for the bloody cross and an empty tomb other than the realization that God actually does want to be friends with perfect people and the knowledge that you and I are not perfect. Kind of seems like a hopeless place to live trying to be perfect so that God will want to be my friend, right? <laughs> I mean, that's rough. <laughs> God. God, would you please just ignore what you just saw? <laughs> I really want to be your friend. You know, it's like the little kid on the playground. Everybody else is playing and having a good time. You're the only one left out. It's like, please, Jesus, can I be your friend? That's the kind of angst or the kind of feeling I think that we might feel inside when we think about this. The psalmist knows this. He gets it. He knows what it's like to be in that place. So what does he remind us of? Look at verse 5. It reminds us in verse 5 that the person whom God wants to be friends with is actually the person who will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. In other words, what God wants is God wants to be friends with people that he has saved. That's the way you see it. See, the reality is that we can get close to God if we seek him through the salvation he offers, right? It's through the work of Jesus at the cross and the empty tomb that we're able to draw near to God because his blood covers and removes our sin. It covers our sin, it removes it, it also pays the penalty for it. In all of that work at the cross, when Jesus says, it is finished, it's not that he finished my job being perfected or my marriage being perfected, right? He didn't, he didn't finish that. He finished the work of salvation over you and I. And the beauty of the message of the gospel, the message of the entire Bible, is this. You cannot come into God's presence because you are not perfect. Only Jesus could come into God's presence because only Jesus is perfect. And when you and I actually trust in Jesus as the God of our salvation, then we are enabled to come into God's perfect, loving, merciful, gracious, faithful presence, right? Isn't that good news? Man. Even look throughout the Old Testament, and all you have, like I said earlier, is images of God leaving his perfect place. I think of the comfortable place in heaven and all of the comfortable places we get into, and all the ways that God calls us to get uncomfortable. God leaves that uncomfortable place in heaven in his son Jesus, and he comes to his people as the God of salvation, who blesses his children as he covers them in what? His own perfection. God's constant activity in rescuing his children. Say it again. God's constant activity in rescuing his children. That's the only proof that I need that he wants to be my friend. 
all the rest of this aside, God's constant activity in rescuing his children, that's the only proof that I need that he wants to be my friend. So who is God? And how do I get close to him? That's the question of the text. And the answer is, God is the creator. He founded and established the world. He owns everything. He's the king of glory who is strong, is mighty in victory over Satan, sin, and death. And the reality is that you and I can draw close to God if our hearts are open to him and if we seek him through the salvation that he offers. In conclusion, you've got to ask this question. What do you do now? What do you do now after all this? Great message, Pastor. What do you want me to do with that? What difference should this make? Did I just get a bunch of head knowledge? I can walk out of here and explain the five points of Calvinism to you? Or the five points of Arminianism? I really don't give a rip, right? Or did I just get a bunch of points I need to walk out of here and go do some things? pump you up so you can be a better Christian kind of a message. No, I don't think it's either one of those. I don't hope not. What should we do now that we know who God is? What should we do now that we know how to draw close to him? I'm going to leave us with this. The word Selah shows up twice in the text. Now, the word Selah means to stop, to think, to reflect, it's a process. That's what it means. It makes perfect sense to me that we should stop, we should think, we should reflect carefully about who God is and how we can come close to him. God is the creator. Okay? He is the God of salvation. He is the king of glory. And to draw close to God, we have to want to be friends with God. It's not a have to, it's a want to. If your heart's in a place of have to, you've got to ask God, please change my heart so I'm not just in this place of have to where it's just mundane obligation. Change my heart so that it's a want to. So that my heart yearns and desires and thirsts and hungers like a newborn baby with no food or water, right? It's that kind of, please give me that kind of energetic wanting to love you, God. A realization that God wants to be friends with us, that God's constant activity in rescuing his children, that that is the proof that he wants to be our friend? Like the cross of Christ and the empty tomb and the promise of heaven. That, that's, that's the proof that he wants to be friends with us. So it's important to think about the big questions we ask about God, right? It's important to think about those questions. But I think it's not necessarily just equally as important, but more important. I think it's more important to think about the biblical answers to those questions. And that's what the word Selah means. Stop, pause, reflect, think. Let it sink in, right? Let it seep in to the cracks and the crevices. All these realities about who God is. All these realities about, there's got to be a want to inside of me. And there's definitely a want to inside of him. And let that soak in like water, like raindrops coming down on dry ground trying to get down to the roots of your life so that your life might be fruitful. God is the creator. He is the God of salvation. He is the king of glory. 
And we need to seek his presence. And we need to trust in his work at the cross and the empty tomb. We need to hold fast to the promise of heaven. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Pray, God, that you would, in these final moments, that you would show up in a, in a very visible and tangible and practical way even. Um, as we actually, you know, over the next few moments, get to see the gospel rehearsed. As we get to see this message of your life, death, and resurrection rehearsed, not only through the receiving of the elements of communion, but through baptism. Help us to, help us to resonate with that. Help it to sink in that you are creator God. You are savior God. You are glorious God. And you want to know us. And you want us to know you. And that you come by the power of your spirit. And you meet us in all of our imperfections and all of our failures in all of our inability to perform in ways that we should or in ways that we used to I mean, you come and you say hey I've done it I have performed all that is needed for you I pray God that you would help us to rest secure in that message in Jesus name Amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.